Today's reading is Mark 1, chapters 1 through 20. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in the Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness forty days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God, and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat, mending the nets. And immediately he called them. And they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. The word of the Lord. So over the course of uh, the next couple months, we're going to be spending a lot of time in the gospel of Mark. And uh, we're going to be doing that in our life groups, that we're going to be doing that here in, in the pulpit. And so I'm really, really excited to do that. Um, and, and Mark is, I think this is not hyperbole to say that Mark might be the most important uh, document ever written in, in the history of the world. And here's why it's not hyperbole to say that. Because Mark was the first person to do something that no one before him ever, had ever done. So, so the Apostle Paul, I mean, he is our earliest witness, written witness to the life of, of, of Jesus. But it was Mark who sat down and wrote what was, in effect, a biography of Jesus. And, and when he did that, he, in essence, created what was a, a new literary genre, a gospel. And the reason that we call writings about the events and teachings surrounding the life of Jesus of Nazareth a gospel is because Mark decided to have his first words of his writing be this, the beginning of the gospel, about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. So thank you, Mark. And the reason that, that Mark is called Mark is that since the, the second century, at least, uh, church tradition has identified this work with a man named John Mark, 
we see in the book of Acts and also uh, is addressed in some of Paul's letters. And Mark was an important assistant to uh, the apostle Paul when he was under house arrest at Rome. And it's also in Rome that he became associated with Peter. And the belief is that much of the material in Mark are Peter's own recollections of Jesus's life and teachings. The same Peter who was called Simon in our passage this morning. Now, there's nothing in Mark itself that, that gives us a definitive answer as to precisely who wrote it and, and who its intended, uh, its intended audience was. But, but that really doesn't matter too much for our purposes, though there are, are, are some points where what Mark writes, if we can maybe situate the church he was writing to or the situation, it can be suggestive and help us understand some aspects of it. But actually, you know, for centuries, Mark was the redheaded stepchild of the Gospels. And when we compare it to the other ones, you know, Matthew, Luke, and John, it's not that hard to see why. They were written by much more learned hands. Their mastery of Greek far surpassed Mark, as did the sophistication of their narrative and their literary style. Mark's Greek has been called barbarous. Some have even called it schoolboy Greek. There's a reason that, you know, if you're in seminary and you're taking introduction to New Testament Greek, uh, Mark is one of the first writings that you're going to sit down and start to translate. And the early church also thought that Mark was just an abridgment of Matthew, kind of the, the boiled down, reduced reader's digest version of Matthew's gospel. And so they said, why would you read the abridged version when you can just have the full version? And, and Augustine one of my faves, uh, he did Mark no favors by when he was writing in the year 400, he called Mark Matthew's lackey. Ouch. And so Mark's reputation, it suffered for centuries. He was ignored. Uh, he was left on the shelf as, as, as uh, ancient and medieval and, and Reformation commentators preferred Matthew, Luke, and John. But Mark's reputation was more than recovered after centuries of neglect with the advent of modern biblical scholarship where it gained pride of place, not as the poor man's Matthew. No, gone were those days. But, but it became known as the original, the OG gospel itself. That's right. The first written biography of Jesus. It was felt that, that Mark was the one who was getting us closest to what Jesus actually said. And so Mark did not, never did deserve its obscurity. Although it might be simple in, in its language and its presentation, it is a, a narrative that is crackling with energy. It moves from one event to the next. It, it almost has this frenetic pace. And in all of it, we, we meet a Jesus who, who doesn't teach as much as he acts, and he acts with power and authority. He heals, he exercises demons, he's getting into arguments with the scribes and Pharisees. He's misunderstood by almost everyone, especially his closest followers. He comes to Jerusalem in triumph and, and dies the horrible death that he predicted that he would, but no one would listen to him. He was not found in the grave after three days, but, but, but in one of the great, you know, tragedies of history, the original ending of the gospel is lost to us, and it, so it cuts off right after the women leave uh, the empty tomb in fear after conversing with the angel. And so Mark is raw, 
It's pulsating with energy, and, and I love what one of my uh, Princeton Seminary professors, uh, Cliff Black, wrote in his commentary on Mark, which he spent his whole academic career studying this work. And so Cliff said, this gospel is not the tender account of a kindly teacher wandering the Galilean calm. It is apocalyptic warfare. Warfare between the powers of good and evil, between the forces of light and darkness, between those aligned with the creator God, who is the God of Israel, and those aligned with Satan, who sow chaos wherever they are found. And at the heart of this gospel is the mystery of the kingdom of God. Mark tells us that the kingdom of God, it was at the heart of Jesus's message, the heart of his gospel. He says, the time has come, the kingdom of God has come near, repent and believe the gospel. And so when we read Mark, we're faced time and again with this question, what exactly is the kingdom? The kingdom of God. It was so central to Jesus' message, and yet it's been so conspicuously absent from the church's message and its theological reflection. Maybe that's because we've neglected Mark, and so we've preferred Matthew, and so Matthew, when he's writing about the kingdom, calls it the kingdom of heaven, which is his circumlocution to avoid using the, the word God out of respect for God's name, and so, you know, we, we've come to think of the kingdom as heaven, the, the place you go when you die. But when we read Mark, we see that, that the kingdom of God is God's rule and God's reign on earth, as it is in heaven. The kingdom of God is what the world looks like when God is in charge. And what the world looks like when God is in charge, it looks like what Jesus does in Mark. Healing, feeding, driving out demons, calming the storms, driving out the money changers from the temple, transforming tax collectors and sinners into disciples. It looks like becoming a servant. As Jesus says in Mark 10, the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The kingdom looks like an empty tomb. And now the kingdom of God, it remains elusive. It resists easy explanation or illustration. That's why Jesus spoke in parables and why no one really ever seemed to understand him. Because when it comes to the kingdom, as soon as you think you've grasped it, that you've got it nailed down, it slips through your fingers. It's like nailing jello to the wall. And that's because ultimately the kingdom of God remains an ineffable mystery. Mark never attempts to explain it or, or boil it down or reduce it or make it simple. And, and, and Jesus doesn't do so either. All he can do time and again is to point us to Jesus. Cliff Black said, it's to Mark's everlasting credit that he never explains the mystery of the kingdom of God. Soluble puzzles repay fleeting pleasure. That's true. And so our challenge over these next couple of months as we hear it preached and we study it and we unpack it in our life groups together is, is to explore this mystery, to look at the various facets of it. Because the mystery of the kingdom of God, it's not a problem to be solved. It's, it's a tension that we're invited to live in. Because it's, it's already here, but yet, yet it's always arriving. And, and, and it's like the, the man in Mark chapter 9 where, you know, Jesus says, do you believe? And he says, Lord, I believe. 
but help my unbelief. And it's plain, Jesus, it's plain for those with eyes to see and ears to hear. It's simple, but it remains hidden and inscrutable, wrapped in riddles. As I was preparing for this series and I was reading my old professor's commentary, I was particularly struck by the epigraphs that he chose for the beginning of the commentary. So, you know, you get through the introductory material, you know, who do we think maybe wrote it and when did they write it and what was the situation they were writing into and what are some of the great themes uh, of, of this gospel? You turn to the commentary itself and, and he put these epigraphs at the beginning and they were really well chosen. I mean, wonderfully chosen. And the first epigraph comes from a New Yorker article from 1956 written by Joseph Mitchell called Mr. Hunter's Grave. And it's a part of the story is recanting a, the author's encounter with a, a Methodist minister living in the New York area. And so he says, Reverend J.C. Ramsey, a Southern man, comes from Wadesboro, North Carolina. Most Sundays, he and his wife take Sunday dinner with me, and I always try to have something nice for them. After dinner, we sit around the table and drink potsam and discuss the Bible. And potsam was this coffee alternative, apparently. It was a, an uncaffeinated coffee alternative. Because if you're a good Methodist minister, you're not drinking alcohol and you're not poisoning your body with caffeine either. And so potsam was apparently popular at some time. It sounds really gross. Uh, but, but, but I don't know if you can still find it. But anyway, so they would drink potsam and discuss the Bible. He says, that's something I do enjoy. We discuss the prophecies in the Bible and the warnings and the promises, the promises of eternal life. And we discuss what I call the mysterious verses, the ones that if you could just understand them, they might explain everything why we're put here, why we're taken away. But they go down too deep. You study them over and over. And you go down as deep as you can. And you still don't touch bottom. That's what studying Mark is like. Though it's, it's simple in its style. It's straightforward in its presentation. We can dive deeper and deeper. And we will never, ever touch bottom. But then Black chose a second epigraph, and I think you'll understand in a moment why it was to my great delight. I couldn't believe he had done this. It was almost as if he had planned it just for me. And he chose this. There are conflicts, the reconciliation of which lies beyond the powers not only of human effort, but of human rational conception. One of them is the reconciliation of good and evil themselves in the scheme of nature. To say that we know they will be reconciled is faith. To say that we see they will be reconciled is blasphemy. These are the words of none other than G.K. Chesterton himself. So it was meant to be. Because at the core of Mark is this conflict, a conflict between good and evil, between God and Satan, that the kingdom of God and the kingdom of darkness and we believe, we know that, that God wins in Jesus Christ, but how he wins remains a great paradox. One we resolve too quickly or too trivially at our own peril, to our own detriment. And so as we ponder all that, sort of setting this table, priming the pump for our study of the gospel of Mark, I, I want us to, to look at, at three real specific things, though, in our text this morning. Kind of the, the, the call of the kingdom the cost of the kingdom, and the character of the kingdom. So first, the call of the kingdom. Now, do you remember in school learning to write a five-paragraph essay? 
Does anyone remember that, that, that you had to learn how to write a five-paragraph essay? I sure do. I distinctly remember, maybe I learned it before, but the teacher I know who, who, who drilled it in me the best uh, was my English teacher, my sophomore year of high school at Southwest, Sarah Ann Sexton. She was a living legend for those of us who attended Southwest High School in a certain era. And, and, and so she taught us that, you know, you start with your thesis, you start with your thesis statement, which becomes your thesis paragraph, and then you have your three supporting paragraphs that, that are backing up the point that you're making with your thesis, and then you, ripe everything, you uh, wrap everything up with a bow at the end in your conclusion. And you think of that, you think of the five-paragraph essay and, and English teachers teaching kids to write, and I have to say, God bless the English teachers of this world who are trying to teach these young Philistines to write good. My gosh. John Strand, I salute you. My gosh. You have to read a lot of stuff. That is not good. So thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you for that. In conclusion, oh, I love that. In sum, that's, you know, the thesaurus version of that. But, you know, and let's just be honest. What's a three-point sermon but like a preacher's version of a five-paragraph essay? I'm seen. I'm doing it today. But if we're going to look at Mark, we're going to say, well, okay, what's the thesis statement of this gospel. It comes in verses 14 and 15. So, so something changes. John the Baptist, he gets arrested. So now's the time uh, for Jesus to begin his public ministry. And so it opens with these words. Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the gospel. And so everything that Jesus will go on to say and do in Mark is related to this, the kingdom of God coming near. Now, first, just a word about this word, gospel, uh, which also gets translated as, as good news. And so gospel for us, it's a Christian word, right? We've got 2,000 years of practice with us. And it means, you know, for us, uh, something about a message about Jesus Christ. But in its original context, to the people first hearing, uh, you know, reading Mark and, and hearing it, it was a word that denoted the announcement of a victory in battle. That's how it gets used in, in Greek translations of the Old Testament at various points. You know, if you want to share good news that, that your armies have won, it's a gospel. It's good news. And it also uh, gets used in, in secular context in, in the ancient Greek world it related to sharing some news related to the king. You know, Caesar Augustus was born, and that's the gospel. Like, we need to go share that with the world. That's a new era in world history. Some great thing has been accomplished or happened in his life. And so sharing the gospel, it's, it's sharing good news, it's proclaiming good news about the victory of a king. And in Jesus' mouth, these words are about the impending victory of God as king, about his return to Israel, his defeat of the forces of evil, and the extension of his reign all over the world. And when we understand that, we understand that Jesus' message necessarily had political overtones to those who heard it. Because if God is king, then Caesar is not, and Herod is not, and Pilate is not. And, you know, Donald Trump is not, and Tim Walls is not, and Jacob Fry is not. No, those people are king. And so, you know, when we look at Jesus, especially as we kind of conventionally understand him as, as the teacher of love and peace and wisdom... And so we understand him in that framework. And then we come to the gospel of Mark and, and we're reading that. You know, one of the great questions about Jesus is, well, so how did someone like that end up getting crucified on a Roman cross? 
Because, you know, if, if Jesus was who we conventionally think of him as, or we commonly treat him, you know, kind of the hippie Jesus, then no one would have ever bothered to kill him. Like, what's the point? I mean, and probably no one would have ever bothered to listen to him either. But the kingdom, it, it, it presents a direct challenge to the authorities of this world. It says we have higher loyalties than to our earthly rulers, that, that someone else has our primary allegiance, and, and we will not bow down or compromise or always follow orders. That's what's made Christians so dangerous throughout history. But they couldn't always be counted on to be loyal subjects, that our allegiance to Jesus surpasses all others. And, and so that inevitably places the kingdom of God in conflict with the kingdoms of this world. And, and, and so that's why the rulers of this world are always trying to oppose it or suppress it, dilute it. But the most ingenious ones just co-opt it. All that to say that Jesus' proclamation of the kingdom of God, it, it has to do with a message that brings us to a point of decision about where our primary allegiance lies. Where does it rest? With God or or someone or something else. Everything else that Jesus does and says in Mark, it springs from this thesis that in him the kingdom of God has come near. And we have a decision to make. Do we believe it or not? And this call of the kingdom, it's then captured in these two words that Jesus says, repent and believe. The whole of Christian life, it's summed up, it's captured in those two words, repent and believe. Now, what does it mean to repent? Again, for, for us, this is a religious word. And, and so, you know, you hear the word repent, you probably think, well, I need to feel bad about all the bad things that I've done. And if you've done bad things, it's never bad to feel bad about them. I, I commend feeling bad about bad stuff that you've done, absolutely. But uh, this, this Greek word here, it has more to do with changing your mind than feeling bad. Though, you know, changing your mind about something often includes regret, feelings of regret. But repent, it means really shift your entire mindset. It means to kind of maybe put it in some contemporary terms, you know, shift your worldview. It means adopting Jesus' perspective on the world, see things through his eyes. You know, take off whatever old lenses you were using to look at the world with, and, and you put on these new lenses, the lenses of Jesus, which are the lenses of the kingdom, and, and toss away the old ones. And, you know, there's lots of old lenses that we wear to look at the world. So many, a lot of them, though, when we look at the world, we look at it through eyes that place ourselves at the center of the universe. The universe exists for me and to make me happy and to meet my needs. And all the other people and things sort of rotate around that. There are those lenses that matter that say, well, you know what matters absolutely most about people is, you know, how they vote. You know, we can sort of sort people into good and bad camps based on that. There are, are, are those lenses that say, well, man is the measure of all things. Those lenses that we can wear that, that deny that there's any transcendent reality, all that's there is the particles, the particles, nothing but the particles. But when we see the world through the eyes of Jesus, when we put on his lenses, it's, the world's a lot more interesting and a lot more strange. And we're going to look at Mark, we're going to see a lot of weird things, strange things happening. But that's what the rest of the gospel of Mark is going to show us. What does this world look like through Jesus's eyes? So that's repentance, taking a whole new perspective on the world. But Jesus also says, believe. 
And we hear belief, and again, we think this is a word that has to do about kind of uh, holding mental conceptions in our head in, in, in the right way. You know, what, what propositions do we need to ascend to? What, how, how do we need to arrange uh, the mental furniture in our, our skulls? Just so. But, but what belief means here is it's about pledging our undying loyalty and allegiance to Jesus and following him wherever he leads us. Belief is not so much about abstract ideas as it is about personal trust. And I say this as someone who loves abstract ideas. I love theory. I love theorizing. This is good stuff. And that's got their, you know, those things have their place, but they can never, for the Christian, replace a personal commitment to Christ, personal loyalty, allegiance. So that's the call of the kingdom. Repent and believe the gospel. But what about the cost? The cost of the kingdom. And for that, we turn to this little story at the end of our passage about Jesus calling his first disciples. And, and there's just some really interesting aspects of this story um, that we can miss, given our distance in you know, time and, and culture from, from this passage. But, but what Jesus does is, is he seeks these men out when he calls them, they don't come and apply to him for membership. And, and this was totally unconventional, unheard of for rabbis. So Jesus seeks them out. He's flipping the script. And second, you know, well, Jesus calls them, he calls them as individuals with individual names. He calls them into a community. And that's just how God works. When he calls us by name, he doesn't call us alone. He calls us into a community of followers. There's no lone wolf Christians. And Jesus, when he left the world, you know, his legacy that he left wasn't writing anything down, wasn't building anything, it wasn't establishing um, some institution. All he left the world with was a community of followers committing, committed to continuing to spread his message and ministry all over the world. And also note that Jesus promises to make them, you know, you know fishers of men. And when you picture uh, what he's saying here, don't think of, you know, yourself out on a serene lake, you know, plopping one line into the water and sitting there in the quiet and reeling in one fish. Like, think more of, uh, you know, deadliest catch or something like that. I mean, this, this was, was hard, dangerous, difficult work, commercial fishing. Your goal was to capture lots of fish in your net. But also note that Jesus is the one who takes responsibility for their transformation from fishermen into fishers of men. Follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Transformation is Jesus's work. Our work, following, watching, obeying, learning from him. But now what does it cost those first disciples? Everything. He called, they answered. They left it all behind, Mark tells us, at once, immediately. That word immediately, that's one of Mark's favorite words. It occurs 51 times in the New Testament, 41 of those in the gospel of Mark. And so for Mark, the gospel comes with a sense of urgency. We don't have forever. We can't throw away our shot. Seize the day, carpe diem. So the cost of discipleship is everything because there's nothing that can come between us and Jesus. Not our families, not our jobs, not our stuff, not our pride. And this cost is great, whether you're rich or poor. See, uh, another fascinating detail of the story is, is the difference between these two fishing operations. You know, Simon and Andrew, they're casting their nets into the lake, which means they're out there wading in the water themselves. And the type of net they're using was used by the, the lower class fishermen on the Sea of Galilee. They're the poor fishermen. 
But then there's James and John, the sons of Zebedee, who were working in the boat with their father and the hired hands. They had a boat. They had employees. This was a successful business. Leaving everything cost them a lot. But the cost was the same. The call to discipleship, to following Jesus, costs everything because when we do that, we get everything. We get friends, we get family, we, we, we get housing, food, compassion, care, but most of all, we get Jesus. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said that only costly grace can save us. That's what we see here. But lastly, there's the character of the kingdom. What's the character of a person who belongs in the kingdom of God? What kind of character do they possess? And so for that, we can look at John the Baptist and Jesus. So Mark tells us that the people flocked to see and hear John the Baptist in the wilderness. He says all of Judea and Jerusalem went out to him. Why was he so popular? It's not like he had a positive, uplifting message. So why were people flocking to him? Because he fully embodied his message. John's message was that, that God was going to do something great soon, and so people needed to, to go out and get washed up and get ready. Fix up, look sharp. They needed to, to worry more <laughs> about what was happening on the inside than how they looked on the outside. And John was not someone who was terribly worried about outward appearances. Mark tells us he wore, you know, a camel's hair and, and a leather belt. That, that was, you know, just the clothes that were worn by the very poor. And he ate the food of someone living off the land, locusts and wild honey. And so his lifestyle embodied this total independence and freedom from the trappings of this world. He was a person of integrity. You know, who he was and what he preached, they were perfectly aligned. Would that we would take this to heart. There is something almost irresistible about people of integrity. People who don't just practice what they preach, but they become what they preach. They embody what they preach. Because the good news of Jesus, it, it, it's not just words that are supposed to pass through our lips, but it's, it's this truth that saturates our lives. It's lived out in every aspect. So the character of John is the character of someone who, who fully embodies what they proclaim and declare. And lastly, we look for Jesus for kingdom character, but specifically to his temptation. Now, immediately after his baptism, Mark tells us in our translation that the Spirit drove Jesus out into the wilderness. So this isn't some sort of nice leading out there, but it's actually the same word that gets used of when Jesus casts out evil spirits. He drives them out. Well, Jesus gets driven into the wilderness to face temptation. And Mark doesn't give us the same details that Matthew and Luke do about that, you know, three specifics of the temptations that Jesus faces. But he tells us one particular, peculiar detail that's missing from Matthew and Luke, and, and that's that Jesus was with the wild beasts, the wild animals in his temptation. Now, why Mark included this detail, it's not exactly clear, but, but a clue comes from actually the traditional belief that Mark wrote this gospel for the church at Rome sometime around the persecution of Nero in the late 60s. And so uh, Roman historians tell us that in the late 60s, there was a great fire in Rome that uh, many believed was set by Nero himself, but Nero needed a scapegoat and close at hand for him, luckily, was this kind of weird uh, religious minority that he could persecute, the, the, the Christians. And actually his persecution drove the, the church underground into the catacombs. And, and his persecution was brief, but it was brutal and ugly. 
you know, Christians crucified on crosses and lit up as torches for his gardens and covered in animal skins and thrown to the wild beasts, the wild animals. So you see that connection there. That if Mark is writing to a church under persecution, how much hope would it be for them to know that their Lord had faced those same tests, those same trials, those same wild animals and emerged unscathed? So whatever the case may be, what Jesus' temptation reveals about his character and the character of the kingdom is that the closer we are to God, the closer we will be to the front lines, the closer we will be to combating evil and suffering in the world, that the closer we will be to this world's real brokenness. When we follow him, we will come face to face with the absolute worst that this world has to offer. And it's not because we're far from God. It's not because we're far from Jesus, but we're close to him. Because the closer we are to him, the deeper we get into the fray. But we have this assurance that he is with us. So friends, I'm so excited to study Mark along with you and to uncover together the mysteries of the kingdom and to share with you what N.T. Wright calls the good, and parenthetically, extremely dangerous news that the living God is on the move. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please pray with me.